Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Tuesday, today is Thursday, April the 5th, 2018. And thank God it's not Tuesday. I want this week over, guys. I do. I know I have a great life with, with the stuff I do for you guys and all, and uh, teaching on air and podcasting and a lifestyle business and all, but even even in this situation, there are times when you're just ready for a weekend, and I am ready for a weekend. This morning was uh, challenging, to say the least. Anyway, episode 2197 on a Thursday, of course, will be a listener call show. This is where you call into 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. And uh, so if you want to get on a show like this, you make that call, and then what do you do? Please, guys, please make your point or ask your question up front. I, I know I sound like a jerk sometimes, but I have honestly got to the point where if we are 45 seconds into your call, in fact, if we are this morning, if we were 30 seconds into your call, and you hadn't told me what your point was or asked your question yet, guess what happened to your call? That's right, the delete button came down hard like a banhammer in a forum. I'm telling you, man, you, you, you got to do it because what happens is we're never clear on your question if you don't do that. And you're never clear on your question if you do, don't do that, and, and, and the call becomes unusable. So please ask your question, make your point, et cetera, and then give me details. Uh, it, it will go best. I'm a professional. I've been doing this for 10 years, and I'm, I'm just going to tell you that's the way that it works. It's also the way you get by the screening. Because some people didn't do that, and because some people didn't follow the other rules I'll give you in just a second, uh, we have cleared up the backlog. I have no new calls. I have some backlog stuff that didn't make it round first cut type stuff. And uh, I can use those if I need to as filler. But right now we are wide open for calls. So if you follow the rest of the rules that I'm going to give you, including the first primary rule, and you call in between now and, let's say, Thursday morning next week, you have a really good chance of getting on the air with your questions. So please do so. Anyway, the other rules. Call from a quiet area, not where there's a bunch of noise. And uh, if you are on a cell phone, call from a place where you have a couple bars on the phone, not just one, because no one will be able to tell you that your call sounds like... Uh. All right. Anyway, so what are we going to talk about today? What do we have calls on those that made the cut? We have a question on putting a shooting range in, in a rocky area. We have a question on grapes, comfrey, and leech fields. This is in septic leech fields. Uh, we have a call on why you shouldn't carry a wallet in your back pocket in regards to, uh, to my... Uh, adaptation of the Ridge wallet into my life and front pocket wallet carrying. We have uh, a question on dealing with field buying weed. We have a question on dealing with debt collections. We have thoughts on clothing as a prep. And we have the simple way to charge a golf cart with solar panels. All of that and more in uh, just a bit before we get into that. Let me remind you that if you like this show and you want to support us in the work that we do, that the best way to do that is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. Comes out to about 18.3 cents an episode, but right now, have I got a deal for you? From now until close of business Sunday night, which will be midnight Central Daylight Time, uh, we have a discount going on that is a lifetime discount. As long as you stay an active member, or if because you got cut off because of a credit card issue or something like that, I'll put you right back on the old plan. Uh, but 30 bucks a year instead of 50 bucks a year, that discount locks in for life. The discount code is TSP18. TSP18. That's all you got to use. You get that discount. You can also use it uh, if you want to pay by mail, if you want to pay by crypto, all the ways to pay. You can just write it. Or when you're doing crypto, you'll get a list of addresses you can send crypto to. Just deduct it. And uh, we'll honor the thing. If you send in the form to pay by mail, um, just write it on the, just write TSP18 on the form and we will adjust accordingly. On crypto, just one more time real quick, I get people sometimes, well, you don't have crypto so-and-so on the site. Will you take it? Uh, unless it's Dogecoin or something, like most of what any of you would have and want to pay with, I will, I will accept. Just email me and ask me for an address, and, and we'll get that worked out together. Anyway, uh, it is a great time to join the MSB, and I really recommend you take a look at it if you're not a member yet. Uh, this is the time of year for planning. I think if you use the seed and plants discounts alone, we have like six different companies that do stuff like that. 
that might pay for your $30 membership right there. I mean, some of our seed uh, companies do you know, 15 20% discounts. That adds up if you're buying a bunch of stuff. Bob Wells Nursery, 10% off all trees and plants and bushes. You know, those things are expensive, so that adds up really quick. You know, $100 worth of trees, $10 off. That's a third of your, your stuff right there, and $100 is not a lot of trees. So consider it, and remember, like, it is you guys that support this show that make it, you know, possible for me to do it and having done it now for almost a decade. And on that note, before we get into your questions, I just want to stop and say right now, thank you. Thank you to every single one of you that has supported my show over the years. I don't care if it's financially, emotionally, with comments, with sharing, or just by listening to us, telling other people about us, etc., um, without you guys, I couldn't do this. And and some days I have a stressful morning or a stressful week, and I'm ready for the weekend on a Thursday instead of a Friday. Um, but I, I live a really blessed life, and, and it's because of y'all. And, and I, I, I try to never, ever forget that. So thank you so very much for uh, for being part of what we do here and telling other people about it. With that, let's uh, take our first call today. This is uh, about putting in a shooting range. Hey, Jack. Dennis from Central Pennsylvania here. Uh, formerly from New Jersey, took my walk to freedom. Thanks again for all your help. Um, what's the best way to build an outdoor shooting range? The details are I bought a 30-acre homestead here, and it's very hilly. My tallest hill is about 120 feet in elevation. Halfway through the hill, they quarried out a couple acres. Um, so I drive into the hill, and it has about 60-foot rock wall. So I figured, hey, that'd be a great place to shoot some of my guns. Um, but the problem is ricocheting, which you're probably sitting there like, oh, don't just shoot at rock walls. Anyway, so what's the best way to do it? Um, I have a lot of old rock in there still that's loose. I could repile it. Um, it can be a pain in the butt to get a lot of dirt in there. Uh, but if I have to, I could, you know, step out to one of my hills here. Um, that are pretty high and it'd be hard to shoot anything over. Um, but yeah, what's the logistics about setting up a, uh, a, uh, outdoor shooting range? If anybody wants to check me out, DennisAllen.com. I am the city boy homesteader trying to build a better life for me and my family. Actually, just a dog and a cat, uh, with the experience and guidance of Jack Spirito. Thank you all. I'll talk to you later. Well, it's kind of interesting and a little bit sad that you have a, a couple acres quarried out on your property. Um, that's usually done for mining rock or gravel or something like that, which leaves you with not much in the way of productivity, pretty scarred but open area. So I can see why you'd want to put a shooting range there. And, it, you know, it may, it may be kind of one of the better places on the property to do just that. Um, but, you know... I can't make rock not make bullets bounce. And what I'm envisioning is a lot of rock, very little of anything else. You say it's hard to get dirt there, but I bet you can figure it out. I bet a four-wheeler and a trailer, and you can start bringing dirt in left and right, and you can get a hold of like the cheap fill-type dirt. Anything can have some rocks in it pretty cheap. And what you need is a berm. Uh, seriously, like... If I'm somewhere out hunting and I have a shot at an animal and it's kind of a rocky area, I'm not going to not take that shot over some rock because most of the time you know it's going to be okay. And if you're going to hit an animal first and if you're shooting any kind of distance or whatever. But if you're firing repeatedly over and over like you do when you have a range with practice, it's, it's, it's a matter of time before something unfortunate occurs. Uh, now, in, in most instances, hitting rocks, bullets will fragment, and rock will fragment, and it, it, it's pretty likely that you're not going to have a, you know, it's not like, remember, you'll shoot your eye out with Ralphie in the Christmas story where, you know, you shoot a bullet out out of rock, and it hits it, and it bounces back and hits you in the eye. That's not how that works. However, I've seen bullets do, using what are considered proper targets, even at proper safety distances, do some nasty things. Um, I've, I was shooting David, uh, David's 10 millimeter, my buddy David from, uh, uh built on for breakfast and, uh, Patrick Rorman was with us and we were shooting reactive targets that are, you know, like a tree. And, uh, one of the rounds I fired, Patrick said, ow, his leg hurt. He was standing 10 feet behind me and we were at a, I don't remember how far we were, but we were at a distance considered acceptable from the target. Obviously, eyes and ears on. Good reason here. This is a good 
kind of uh, indicator why it's important to wear eye protection when you're shooting, especially at reactive targets, uh, you know, at, at handgun distances, you're not 50, 100 yards with a rifle. Um, that 10 millimeter fragmented off one of those uh, one of those targets on that tree, and bounce back hit him in the leg. And uh, Patrick Rohrman, you know, of Empty Knives, being himself, pulls his pant leg up, gets one of his knives out, and starts digging into it, and and pulled out a fairly sizable piece of shrapnel. I'm not saying it was anything life-threatening or anything like that, but it looked painful. It was a, a jagged piece of lead that was just under the skin. Um, and I think it hit him like an upper thigh, or lower thigh, I'm sorry. And it, I mean, so... That's the kind of thing that can happen, and if you're going to be repeatedly shooting, especially at any kind of handgun ranges or anything, I, I'm saying get yourself a, a dirt berm. You know, one of the things we learned in the military is nothing stops bullets like dirt. It, it's, it, it is the universal bullet stopper. Um, you know, tree, old tree wood and stuff like that works pretty good too, but I mean it breaks down, it wears out. Dirt just keeps working forever. So personally, I, I would want, you know, dirt berms or something like that wherever you're going to be shooting. A little more generalized, I kind of look at shooting ranges as having multiple purposes. And, and, and for one of them, you would have no issues whatsoever with what you have right now just using it. And that is like skeet, sporting clays and stuff like that. Firing shotguns and birdshot, I, I'm not concerned with this. Again, eyes and ears, hearing protection and safety glasses for maybe those not familiar with the term. Um, it sounds like a great place to throw skeet. Make sure you're buying the biodegradable skeet that's designed to break down over time. And if you ever decide to have hogs, it's right on the box. But I'll reiterate, uh, pigs can get in and, and they'll eat anything. And the pitch that's in those, even the, the breakdown ones, can be toxic to hogs. So don't run any hogs down in there if you do skeet shooting. Then I think, you know, pistol and rifle. And, and if you were going to do anything, I'd be a lot more comfortable with a minimum 100-yard shots with a rifle in this environment um, than I would with pistol distances, let's say 15, 25-meter range-type thing, or even close range, 7 to 10 meters. Um, you have a lot more potential for problems. You could probably get away with it, but I'm just not comfortable. But when you're setting your range up, you should think about the different uses you want for your range. Uh, if you want to do long distance shooting, if it's a couple acres, I mean, it's it would probably be that you could get you know a couple hundred yards of shooting out of this. Uh, so if you're going to put in like let's say a bench, then think about positioning your bench where you can have one bench and, and engage you know targets set up at a hundred, two hundred, and however far you can get out. And uh, with pistol, I mean, you might want to think about multiple small berms if you want to be able to practice moving, reloading, etc., and things like that. Uh, might make things a little bit easier. Um, again, I, I don't want to say you can't do it the way that it is because I haven't seen it. I don't know what you're dealing with, and if it's down in a hole, then your you know your ricochet concerns are mostly just for yourself. But you know, it's it's disconcerting when you're shooting and you hear. Pew! I mean, like, okay, where did that go? And uh, it's going to happen no matter what from time to time, but I, I just personally wouldn't build a, a range in a rock quarry without creating berms. And, and I'll bet you can figure out some way to do it uh, fairly economically, by the way, and, and get in reasonable berms. And, uh, you know, then within whatever you're able to do for safety, stay within those boundaries. You know, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. So you might not want to be down there doing live shooting, running and gunning, uh, unless you can set up enough berms to make it where you can do that responsibly. Hope that helps. Anybody ever dealt with a situation like this? Love to hear what your thoughts on it are. But, you know, like I said, skeet shooting and sporting clay sounds like a great idea down there, and that I'm not going to worry about at all with birdshot. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, are grapes a good choice? or something to grow in and over a leach field. The details. I have a leach field, and I like grapes. Uh, so I'd like to grow grapes in the leach field and over the leach field. And I was not sure if that's going to cause problems with the leach field, with the roots of the grapes. I would uh, guess that the grapes themselves will be just fine because they're up off the ground, etc., etc., My main concern has to do with uh, shooting myself in the foot and uh, destroying my leech field. 
Any thoughts would be greatly appreciated. And also, I guess while we're at it, uh, is Comfrey cool to throw in there, too? Uh, thanks for everything you do, man. Take care. So the answer is you probably can uh, grow grapes over your leach field without a lot of concern for the roots getting down into the piping, but I probably wouldn't. And it has nothing to do with you know it being toxic or anything like that. I think one of the things we need to understand about leach fields in general is most septics that have a leach field, and we're talking about uh, a system here that has a, a you know there's the ones with the sprayer. And it doesn't sound like what you're asking about, where it's like a sprinkler system goes off on a timer to deal with the water. Uh, when you're talking about a, a, a conventional septic and leach field arrangement, generally what you have is a two-tank system. You have a solids tank and a liquid tank. And that solid tank is where everything goes first, and then that solid tank has where everything breaks down, and that overflows into your liquids tank, and then that liquid tank overflows into your leach field. And the majority of what comes out of that liquid tank is looks like just water. It's pretty clear. It doesn't smell great, but it doesn't stink real bad either. It's not something you'd want to drink, but it's not as bad as I think people make it out to be. Now, the thing is, depending on where you are and how your system's set up, that those pipes in that leach field could be different depths, how much soil there is above them. Sometimes they're just barely under the surface. Sometimes they're a little bit further down. And grapes do have some fairly aggressive roots, so it doesn't get out of hand like a tree. Um, if it was me, I would tend more to plant my grapes around the peripheral area, just just to the outside of the leach field, because that's going to continue to get drain off and give them a significant amount of bonus irrigation, plus some fertication, and they'll probably be very, very happy there. My reasoning for this is, a grape is a is a plant that if you plant it and for let's say some reason or another your kids decide to stay in your house after you're gone, conceivably fifty or sixty years from now, those grapevines have properly tended could still be producing grapes. There are Concord grapevines in the back of my father's home, and he's living where his you know where he grew up it was his dad and mother's house, and uh, I don't know exactly when those Concord grapevines were planted. But I know that in the 1980s, when I tended them for my grandfather, they were very old. And they probably could have stood without a trellis at that point. The The vines coming up out of the ground were, were about as big around as the, my calves are right now. Uh, and I have fairly substantial calves. I'm not one of those guys with, with bird legs built up top and little tiny bird legs. I mean, they were big. I mean, you're talking like forearm, bigger than the average man's forearms coming up out of there. So i got to think... They were planted somewhere around the 1950s or earlier, and they're still there, and it's 2018. So let's just say it was 1950 that the old man planted those, uh, and today, 2018, uh, you're looking at, what, 50, 68 years? Okay, so what does that have to do with anything? It's almost inconceivable that over that length of time that you might not get into a situation where you have to redo your leach field. And I, I just th think about a 10- or 15-year-old grapevine that's producing and just beautiful, and you have to yank it out to redo your leach field. I had to cut down a friggin', um, what do you call it? Uh, so I had, I had to cut down a crepe myrtle recently to, uh, to facilitate some of the work that we had to do for the backyard. You know, it's just an ornamental tree. I didn't even plant it, but it was... It sucked. It was a mature, you know, it wasn't huge, but it was a mature crate myrtle. You know, if you, if you had, you know, an unlimited budget and you wanted it in your landscaping, they, they make them that big that they can come in and plant for you. You're probably talking two, three hundred bucks. So imagine 10 or 15 beautiful grapevines and you're, you're cutting them down because you had to do work on your leach field. So to me, planting those things just on that periphery would be a lot more thinking well in the forethought and and I would you know leave the generally speaking I think that unless you really are space starved the best thing to do with leach fields is just leave it as lawn uh, and and let herbs and flowering uh, herbs and stuff and and forbs and and, and the same thing you know uh, 
white clover, that type, you know, Dutch white, New Zealand white clover in there would be great, things like that to bring in pollinators, and let it be an open space. Let it be a space where when it, if, you, if you don't have kids, when family comes over, the kids can throw a football and play. And that's kind of how we look at ours. We have this open area right behind the house, and it's just going to be that way. The comfrey, go ahead. I mean, comfrey's not going to hurt anything. It's going to do really well, uh, easy to pull up, and uh, a great place to you know get more comfrey to plant elsewhere. So, I mean, comfrey I'd be cool with. See, I think I'd, I'd try to make it very uh, meadow-like there, wildflowers, mint, stuff like that. Uh, are going to do well. Mint loves moisture. It'll it'll grow a lot. It's very dense uh, root mass, but it's not a deep root mass. And again, grapes should probably, if you really want to do it, you can. Uh, I don't think you'll create a catastrophe for yourself. Grapes are fairly shallow rooted, but I, for all the reasons I gave you, I, I personally wouldn't advise it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, Jason from PA here. I heard you mention the Ridge Wallets, and then interestingly, you mentioned moving your wallet to your front pocket. And I'm going to tell everyone that's a survival tactic, because if you keep your wallet in your back pocket, you're risking uh, long-term physical damage. Uh, I sometimes get sciatica, but it was getting really bad. And a friend of mine who's a massage uh, therapist asked, do you keep your wallet in your back pocket? I was like, yeah. She's like, move it. Um, keeping the wallet in your back pocket actually presses against the nerve there and causes um, long-term potential damage, and a lot of sciatica is actually enhanced because of the keeping of the wallet. So everyone move your wallet to your front pocket and keep your body healthy. Uh, police have the same problem by keeping their handcuffs at the small of their back, and a lot of cops now are having back problems from doing so as well. You know, Jason, I completely agree with you. I, I had said that several times in talking about the Ridge Wallet. One of the, the nice things is when I get in the truck now, I don't have to take my wallet out and put it, you know, in my little cubby hole or whatever. And the nice thing about that is I don't forget it in the car and then get in the store and then not have my wallet and have all my crap and have to leave it on a side and go get I mean, I've had that kind of thing happen because I do not sit on my wallet even, even before I went to the Ridge Wallet for that very reason. And it was many, many years ago, uh, Dorothy found a fantastic chiropractor she really loved up in Pennsylvania. And uh, I decided to see him not as routinely as she did, but just for some basic stuff and all. And when we got there, and I, I took my wallet out and set it up on a thing when, I, when they were having me lay down on the table, he said, do you sit on that when you drive? I said, no. And he, and he said, the same type of things that Jason brings up. I think another thing is, you know, we, we talked about with the Ridge Wallet, with titanium and the shielding and all, it, it not being susceptible to identity theft, you know, by a scanner. Somebody just wanting your butt, basically. But there's more than one way people steal what's in a wallet. And one of the primary ways is pickpocketing. And there are, let me just say, there are good pickpockets. I've seen guys on like TV shows and all that, that, that as part of their shtick, you know, they're guys that don't do it professionally anymore anyway. They do it kind of as like magician type stuff and showing people what can happen, but acting as ushers. I remember this one talk show. I don't remember what talk show it was, but they had this guy come in and he was going to show people about pickpocketing and all. Well, no one really knew him. It wasn't like, you know, those kind of people aren't famous. It's not like, you know, you got uh, some celebrity out there with you and all. So he pretended to be one of the ushers uh, when they were seating the studio audience. He stole wristwatches off people's wrists. Like, and they were showing a slow motion. I did it like he took the, this, this lady by the hand and right here, and as he's sitting her down, boom, her watch is gone. And I'm just sitting there going, I don't think you could do that to me, but I also can't, you know... You know, deny the results and the distractions. And when he was, they were going through the tape later. He was telling exactly. And of course, they gave everything back to people. But you know, they started, you know, talking about it and realizing who he was. And anybody that came in contact with him, when they start, they start checking. And he had just buttloads of stuff. So there's people that are really good at it. That you know, can get stuff out of a front pocket, out of a purse, or whatever. But any type of theft deterrent is about making it less easy. And the more difficult it is, the more you have a risk-reward ratio that's just not worth it. So when I did used to carry a wallet in my butt pocket, um, I never carried cash in it. I always put the cash in a, you know, I use a, a, a money clip type thing. Now the wallet is the money clip. It's kind of nice. It's all in one again. Uh, but And I'd carry that in my front pocket. 
And if you get my wallet, you get my credit cards, and I make a phone call, and you know we're done. You're not using that stuff, but they do have your driver's license and all that other stuff, right? And then you got to go get a new driver's license. It's a pain in the ass. So it's it, it, it by going to that front pocket. I think it'd be much harder for someone to get their hand into my front jean pocket get a hold of this thing and pull it out than it would be for them possibly to notice it. And there's the other thing, too. So if you happen to have a pair of pants you've been wearing a bit and they're a little bit stretched out and all, and that, you know, you see that wall, it's just that if the person is the person that steals like that, it's an opportunity that they see, and it increases your chance of engagement with that. So I think as a survival topic, it's a reduction of contact with somebody that wants to steal from you plus a health issue. So I... You know, if you just think about it this way, from the health issue that Jason brought up, we were not born to carry around a, you know, three-quarter inch lump on our right ass cheek. That's not, the human body was never meant to do that, uh, to, to be sitting and have your body off kilter like that, bad for the back, bad for a lot of things. So I think that is another benefit of, if it's not the Ridge Wallet, any of these minimalist wallets or front pocket carry of, of things like a wallet. And uh, if you if you do it and you're new to it, like I've said repeatedly during the Ridge Wallet spots, um, you will play grab ass with yourself. You look, hot oh, damn, oh, and you, you know you do the same thing everybody does when they look for the keys. You pat the back bag pockets and the front pocket, and then you feel that little. Oh, that's right. Uh, it's funny. It took me almost two and a half months <laughs> to stop doing it. Anyway, uh, it, it also took me two and a half months, like to like not be at the grocery store or wherever you go to reach for your. And, oh, yeah, it's here. Even if you didn't do the grab ass, you just grabbed it once, you know. Oh, yeah, that's right. I got this thing. And anyway, uh, I do recommend that, that, guys, you go to a non-back pocket wallet thing. I think it is better for you in a lot of ways. Uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. How do you get rid of field bindweed? The details. I live in the Pacific Northwest up in Whatcom County, and anytime we disturb soil, we uproot... Uh, field bind weed roots. Uh, I've pulled buckets upon buckets upon buckets upon truckloads out of small pieces of land, uh, small being like 720 square feet-ish. Um, what can I plant there that will serve the purpose of the field bindweed to keep it from feeling the need to grow and overtake everything? Uh, I really don't like using... Uh, well, we don't use Roundup at all or anything else like that. So uh, any help you can have for that, that would be great. Thanks. You know, just let me say, bindweed sucks. It sucks. It's it's one of the more difficult things to get rid of. And you might consider Roundup for it. I know, like, oh, Jack, he's Roundup. He hates Monsanto. I do hate Monsanto. And by the way, since Roundup's so old, glyphosate, chemical base in Roundup. There's a companies that make it other than Roundup uh, than Monsanto. You can buy a generic version. That stuff's been around a long time. Um, I'm not going to say it's my first choice. We, we don't use it here, and I don't want to use it here. But I can't say that there wouldn't be a spot application for a single use of it, uh, and, and Roundup is absolutely effective on, on bindweed. It, it, it works really good on it. But I would prefer not to do that. So if you were dealing with small areas, you're saying 750 square feet, that's pretty big. A lot of people end up with problems with it in the garden. And all you really got to do with it when it's in the garden is get a pair of clippers and just keep cutting it to the ground. And just keep cutting it to the ground. And just keep cutting it. And, and, and again, you mentioned disturbing the soil. Don't disturb the soil any more than you absolutely have to. If you have carrots, you got to pull a carrot out. Okay, fine. Otherwise... Don't disturb the soil, and eventually what you'll do is you'll rob the roots, which is that battery of reserve, uh, where it's just regrow, 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 and it's not getting the opportunity to use that regrowth to recharge, and it will die. That's one way to do it. But I, I just, if you're talking multiple areas, 500, 700 square feet, I just don't know how you're going to do that. I guess you could use mechanical mowing and basically go out and mow close to the ground as low as the blades will go every couple days. You know, but if you're disturbing the soil when you're doing that, you're triggering new 
uh, germination of new bindweed. So you, I, I don't really know that's going to work. Um, the Jeff Lawton chicken tractor food forest establishment mess that would work. So that would be you clear the area, and then you use electronetting, and you put a whole ass load of chickens in there, and maybe you do it in like quarters of that 750-square-foot area, a couple hundred square feet at a time, and you let those chickens just work it and work it and work it. Hogs will eat it too. So the chickens won't just keep taking away from it. They'll also eat it, and pigs will eat it. Cattle will not eat it, and it's, it's not good for them if they do get desperate enough to eat it. But pigs and chickens can eat field bindweed with no problem. That said, I got some here, and the chickens didn't eat it because they had a lot of other stuff to eat when we had chickens in the area. So you might have to really put a heavy toll on the ground with chickens and basically use the chickens or pigs to go scorched earth on this. On scorched earth, the other thing that can work, and you're moving into the time of year to do it, but you're going to delay gratification with this uh, till like fall season or next season, and that's solarization. And at 750 square feet, it gets a, it's a lot of heavy enough plastic tarp to do this with, but if you cover it with a clear plastic tarp through the hot months of the summer, you will solarize the soil and you'll pretty much kill all of the uh, plant life in that soil and you should be good to go after that. Um, I have not tried to sheet mulch out field bindweed, but I have a feeling it probably won't work. And if you were going to be successful, you would probably be in the neighborhood of like four layers of cardboard uh, in a full season and it still might come back. I don't know. You might... You might actually, it might be like, you know, when there's a dandelion and the next door neighbor that uses a weed killer sprays the dandelion in the crack and he thinks it's going to die. And then like a week later, it's like, huh, you tried to poison me. Now I'm mad. And it's bigger. Like it might, it might do that. I, I, I'm not sure. I've never, again, I've never tried to sheet mulch out field buying weed, but your, your controls are chemical, which is the least desirable, but effective. Uh, mechanical in removing the growth consistently, and it has to be consistent. Uh, mechanical in using some sort of mowing device, which I don't know that you'll have much uh, effect with. Mechanical in using uh, pigs or chickens, and in the words of Seth Holzer, if you don't want pigs, you have to do the pig's job. So it, that will work. If you can find pigs with electro net or electric fence to that area until they take it down to nothingness, um, and you and, and don't do it all at once. You know, use maybe half the area or a quarter of the area, and then move them and watch it. If you get any regrowth, put them back in there, and keep keep moving them through that area until that stuff stops coming up. They'll eat it. They'll root it up. They'll tear it apart. Uh, they'll destroy it. And uh, then you'll have ground that you probably need to clean up a little bit and mulch and replant. And I guess it would be helpful for me to know what are you doing with this land? Like when you're open, when you say open, is it is it field that you're plowing? Is it forest that you're cutting? And then what is the goal? Because I think what the goal is has a lot to do. So if you want to follow up, uh, I don't know that I'm going to have another method for you, but the application of the method or the timing of the method may change based on what you're doing, what it's like when you do it, what your goal for the property is, and what you're trying to success it into. Because if you're trying to success it into, let's say you're going from shabby field, you want to go into food forest, then I'm just going to do that with chickens. I'm just going to do that with chickens, and I'm going to plant my trees, and there's going to be some bindweed, and we're going to have to do a little bit of mechanical control to get those trees up to where the bindweed can't choke the daggone trees out, because they will. But once those trees are really up and established, bindweed got nothing, and shade's going to come, and we ain't going to have a bindweed problem anymore. That's why they call it field, you know, they call it field bindweed. They don't call it forest bindweed. But if we're trying to establish pasture, then the animals we're establishing pasture for have to be thought of as either the solution or we have to delay their implementation to protect them. Again, we do not want cattle consuming bindweed. It's not good for them. Again, they, they tend not to do it on their own, but if there's not enough there, they very well might, and their large bodies do enough soil disturbance, they'll probably exasperate the problem. So we have to think about how we apply the technique and the timing of the technique based on all of those things. So please follow up with me with more information. Uh, next we have one that's complicated. It's not on agriculture, though it's on 
parasites. We also call them debt collectors. Hi, Jack. I've been a long-time listener to the show. Thank you for everything that you do. My question is, what is the best course of action to take when you're being sued by a debt collector and you haven't issued a summon and a complaint? Background. Some of my credit cards fell behind when I was unemployed, and this is the one that I was not able to save in time for felon collections. Thanks, Jack. Okay, well, let's start out with the non-optional portion of this. You've been sued and summoned uh, in, in court. Uh, you have to respond to that by the date specified. You can do that on your own, or you can do that with an attorney, and a lot of that is probably going to depend on the amount of the debt and how much money you have now, etc. cetera. Uh, this is something that's not typically been that common. It's becoming more and more common now for debt collection agencies to actually uh, issue lawsuits. And it, it kind of tells me that this the amount of money must be somewhat significant. Uh, it's probably not likely that they did this over $500. Bucks. Um, now, If there's time, there still may be a way, because the, the debt collection agency would prefer not to do this. Um, and they're probably asking for more than the original debt because of penalties, interest, or some other shit. Um, and if you can somehow get the money together to, to pay a portion of the, the debt, And maybe even get, say, they probably bought it for pennies on the dollar. So let's say the amount owed was $20,000 was the original debt owed. And let's say you can scrape together $12,000. That's what you can scrape together. Uh, because it is your debt. I mean, we're, we're clear about that. This isn't some kind of fraud or something. Somebody ran up your credit. This is money you owe. And even if the, these parasites, and that's what debt collectors are, are being parasitic, They purchased your debt. You owed it to the people they bought it from. There's, there's nothing uh, illegal about this in any way, shape, or form. You owe this money. You didn't go into bankruptcy or what have you, so you owe this money. It wasn't discharged in bankruptcy court. But often the, the key to getting people like this to take that is to get in touch with them and say, let's say you had $12,000 is what you came to. I would call them up and say, I've done everything I can to get as much money as I can together to come to agreement on this, and I have $11,937. That's, that's what I have, as though you've squeezed, because it has a different psychological connotation to it. And see if they're willing to, to take the deal of, I'll give you all this money, but you in advance you give me a letter saying you'll drop the lawsuit and you'll consider the debt paid in full and you will report to the credit agencies that the debt has been rendered uh, paid in full. And sometimes that'll work. If you don't have the money, then all you can do is go to court. Here's the problem. If they win the judgment against you, and they absolutely will if you don't respond to it, and they may well win it fully even if you do respond to it, It gives them tools, and you have to understand what those tools are. I mean, one is that they can place a lien on property of yours. Uh, they can also uh, end up getting a judgment to garnish your wages to a certain degree, or even to um, to garnish part of the funds of your bank account, or even seize all of it if you have money in the bank. So generally, these agencies, when they look at making a lawsuit, they use that as a leverage tool to make you more willing to play ball. They also look at, like, well, does this person have assets? Because if the easiest way to get the money is to seize their assets, and we can use the court system to do it, they'll do it. So that's probably the situation you're in. Like you said, one of them you couldn't save. So, like, this was the one you let go, which means you probably kind of got back on your feet and you just didn't take care of this. And, and, the, and the answer is one way or another, you need to take care of this. If it's practical at all, I would look to get an attorney to at least give you some advice in this, if not represent you in this summons. Um, I don't have, there is no secrets that they don't want you to know about like the radio says. Um, this is a serious issue and you need to respond to the summons. That's, that's the, the number one thing you have to do. And it may be like going to court and saying, this is what I can do in response to this debt. And a judge may say that's a reasonable thing and then order that you do what you said you would do, but also order that they accept what you've offered. But when if I'm going to court, I'm talking to an attorney at minimum before I'm going. So so that's my, my strongest advice to you. If anybody is an attorney and deals with these matters, love to hear some follow-up on this, comments on the blog, email, uh, your own call-in, whatever uh, advice here, because this is not my area of expertise. Uh, let's take another one. 
Hey, Jack. It's John from Illinois. I'm about ready to donate a bunch of clothes to Goodwill, but I'm thinking they'll shrink really well into vacuum bags. So what's the right amount of clothes to keep around, uh, you know, in, in case something happens? Because running power to the washing machine isn't practical. Uh, your thoughts? You've never really touched on keeping clothes around. I right, man. Thanks. Well, I mean, on clothing, I kind of look at it this way. We're pretty spoiled in our modern day and age. I think we should have three days worth of clothing in our bug-out bags. Uh, and and if we have additional provisions for bugging out beyond the 72-hour bag, and we should, probably another three to four days of, of like the old stuff you're talking about in there. Uh, having a closet stacked full of clothing. I'm not a religious man, but I'll, I'll quote the truth wherever I have it and, uh, and wherever I find it. And I believe that Jesus said something to the effect that the coat that hangs in your closet that you don't lose belongs to your neighbor. And and I think there's a case for that. Like if it's if you have a lot of clothing you're not using yet, Goodwill or some other place may be a good place for them to go. The times that people end up most needing clothing are not because they can't use their washing machine. It's because they've lost everything. Uh, Hurricane Carvey with the flooding, people shoved out of their house, had no plans, no bug-out kits, etc. One of the main things that we facilitated with uh, Citizens Assisting Citizens getting down to Houston during Hurricane Harvey was clothing. There's a lady that runs a mission just a block down the road from me. She bought an old church down there. It's kind of dilapidated, but she had uh, one room with clothing from the floor to the ceiling. We had guys going down with a trailer, and they were going to use that trailer to procure and deliver supplies. It was empty uh, when they got here because they're still a long way down to Houston from here. And uh, while this was going on, I was coordinating things, and people said, hey, we have these churches that are asking for clothing. They actually had a list, and they went over to her, and they didn't just grab clothes. They went through and found, like, they need, you know, girls size this to that, and, and they basically shopped it and stacked that trailer full and delivered those clothes to a couple different locations. And so that that's why I believe that donating clothing is important because that's where you get to. We've gotten into a world today where, you know, you wear your clothes for a day and you wash them. And I'm all for that because I don't want you stinking or anything like that. But, you know, in, in not that long ago, a, a guy had a pair of work pants. Let me say that again. A guy had a pair, is in singular, of work pants. And they were a lot heavier duty than we make them today because they were worn day after day after day. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, might have a work shirt and that might get washed once a week. So I think we can get by. I also think that, like, you know, everybody wants their snuggle fabric softener and their Tide Pods when their kids aren't eating them or whatever. And, uh, you know, we have all this high end aspirations of what clothing being washed should look like. And, I mean, I've been in situations where we were without the ability to wash our clothes for, you know, a few days or more. And what we ended up doing was we filled the bathtub up with water, a little bit of dish detergent, agitated it by hand, wringed it out the best that we could, and hung it up outside to dry, just like the old days, and it was clean enough. You know, it's not how I want to handle my clothing if I'm going out for a fine dining experience at a top-end restaurant or something, but... I mean, it's not like it's that complicated. So I don't think that most people, and again, I'm going to say this again, I don't think that most people need as much clothing as they have. It, it might be the concept, again, though, of having some stuff that you don't really wear anymore, but it's comfortable, it fits, it's serviceable, and that's the stuff that goes into the bug-out bag. That's the stuff that goes into uh, the advanced bug-out kit. Uh, but once that's met, I think that what you have in surplus should either be donated Or if you want to store it, then I say store it, organize, so you know what is where, and you be that relief person like Michelle down the road was, and when there's one of these uh, local disasters and people need stuff, what specifically do you need? Men's pants? Boom. Here. You know, girls' clothing? Okay, here. Boom. And, and so if it's stored there, I think the mind, if you have the room, the space, and the clothing, and you prefer to do that over goodwill, it's there if you need it, but you should be willing to part with it very, very quickly. I I do believe that certain principles in, in any and all religious faiths end up being true, and that coat that you do not use it could keep your brother warm. And, and I think that my view of clothing is far more to that 
than having a doomsday bunker stocked with blue jeans. It's just not it's just not my thing. Uh, and I do think that even without that washing machine, we can get by. Of all the things that we have to do, uh, getting our clothes complete so that they're not completely rank and uh, willing to put back on, we can probably figure that one out. Uh, let's take another one. Question is, using a golf cart battery bank for a solar system. How can I install a solar system to charge up my golf cart batteries efficiently? I have a 3,000-watt, 36-volt inverter, but I would like to rig up some solar panels to hook up to this. Any comments or any um, advice? Thank you. This is from Marcus. Thank you. So the issue here is that most golf carts are either 36 or 48 volts, and most of your uh, panels are going to charge at 12 or 24 volts, and the most common being 12, in my opinion anyway, the most common being 12. At the, at the level of panel you'd probably use for a project like this. Now, there are... Voltage reducers uh, and, and and voltage increasers where we can change that and we can add them in and put panels on the roof of a golf cart and drive it around like a solar-powered car or something. Um, there's some complications with that and some limitations. And my personal opinion is the simplest, easiest answer that gives you the most flexibility is probably the best answer. So personally, what I would do is go out and acquire uh, two to four, and four is better than two, uh, deep cycle marine batteries, and I would build a battery bank wherever your golf cart lives. And I would get a standard Schumacher or better uh, battery charger, and I would plug that into the wall, uh, and I would attach that to your batteries, okay? And I was going to monitor and tend and keep those batteries charged. Or not. You don't have to do that step, but you could. And I would go get a standard charge controller for 12-volt batteries, and I would hook my solar panels up to that battery bank, and then I would get a 120 uh, inverter, and I would hook that up to that battery bank. And I'm sure right now the way that you charge your golf cart is by plugging it into 120 volts, and I would use that battery bank and solar array to charge the golf cart. Now, why would I do such a thing? Because if we keep the batteries topped off the way we keep our gas tanks topped off at all times and the power goes out, now I have a battery bank and a golf cart. And I have a battery bank that's recharging itself. I have a golf cart that can go somewhere with its own inverter and provide power, but i got a battery bank that can charge the golf cart and power other things. So now I've got maximum flexibility. I haven't jacked around with the wiring in the golf cart at all. Uh, I haven't tried to make something retrofit to something else. I've simply built a 120-volt-based uh, uh, inverter-based battery bank, which has its own value. Now, the other thing is we could build that battery bank in a closet in the house, run the wire from the solar panels to it, put the solar panels up on the roof, and should we need to charge the golf cart from the solar array, we just pull the golf cart up to the house and run extension cord. Now the battery bank is in the house, assuming we have a suitable place for this, and we can expand the battery bank with more batteries and more panels whenever we want. Now we have small-scale solar in our home instead of a golf cart that runs around with panels on the roof of it. You see what I'm saying? Like, there's a finite amount of panels we can stick up on the roof of that golf cart, and for it to charge, we got to park it out in the open where we're probably keeping it in, like, a, a, a carport or a garage or something like that because it's better to do that, right? So you see where I'm going? That in any instance, we're better off with the panels going to a battery bank, going to an inverter, going to the golf cart, in my opinion, than we would be with trying to make the golf cart self-contained. Unless you have a big reason for this. If you have a, a golf cart that you're going to want to, you have a very large piece of property and you're going to want that golf cart to charge when you're on the back 40, well, then, then you're going to look at um, you know a voltage increaser. And I think that's a little bit complicated 
and, and doing things. Reducers are simple and they're inexpensive. Uh, but but going from 12 volts up to 48, I'm not sure exactly what. I'm sure that exists, but it, it, it's it's not you know a $15 or a $20 part uh, that uh, that 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 you know I think you can get going the other direction. And I could be wrong about that, and this might be one to have Stephen Harris give a another take on. But again, I'm back to unless that cart needs to charge when it's far away. And this is for emergencies when the power's out. Build that battery bank. Hook those ba those panels up to that battery bank. Just get yourself a good old inverter for that battery bank. So it's its own inverter and run the power from there through whatever you know. However you're plugging that golf cart in right now, and I think you'll be a lot happier in the long run. You have a lot more flexibility in the long run that way. And folks, that brings us to the end of another show today. Uh, As we finish up, I want to remind you, as always, you can help support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, where you can find all my Amazon reviews. But as long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online, you help us no matter what you end up buying. So today we have the Fletcher's Federal Pepper Mill. This is a product that I brought to you long ago when I first started doing my reviews at tspaz. And it's a pepper mill. And that might seem like, what the hell is a pepper mill? Is a pepper mill? Is a pepper mill? No. Tell you the story of this thing. So I bought one of these 11 years ago, and I hate when something in my kitchen breaks. It just makes me mad. I don't think things should break at least frequently. Uh, and kitchen items should be one of those things that are more likely than not to be things you buy once a decade or once a lifetime. Uh, I've got frying pans that are older than me and my wife put together, and they still work. And that's kind of what I expect out of kitchen gear. Pepper mills have been a thorn in my side for many years, and I had just had one crap out, and I went to this kind of gourmet food store, and I looked around, and they were selling pots and pans that were worth $20 bucks or $50, bucks, that kind of store. And I, I wasn't going to buy anything. I found this pepper mill, and it had a thing on some propaganda. Propaganda can be true, by the way. In this case, it was. And it said the last pepper mill you'll ever buy was $49.99. And I rolled my eyes, and I'm like, really? I mean, is this But I was also thinking, this, is this what I have to do to not throw one of these things away every year? Or more frequently, you know. And uh, you know, I looked at it, I, looked, I said, you know, this looks like when you go to a nice restaurant. They're, they have the bigger ones they use at restaurants, like table side. But it, it looks like something like that. And maybe, and I started playing with it. I took it apart and I looked at the gears in it. And I said, yeah, it's pretty good. And as I'm walking, I, I realize I'm about to spend freaking $50 on a pepper mill, you know. And as I'm walking to the cash register, I read that sign again that says the last pepper mill you ever buy. And I say loud enough for my wife to hear me following behind me. He's also like, why are you spending $50 on pepper mill? It better be. So I bought this thing. I took it home. I've had it 11 years. still works. And in the end, that $50 was better spent you know, $15, $20 every year for 10 years. You add that up. Now... Here's the reason I brought it back today. I, was, I keep an eye on the prices of the stuff that I keep cataloged at T-Spaz. It's on sale for $35, bucks, 15 off. That means you can get it today for less than I paid for it 11 years ago. And in spite of the fact that I wasn't happy about paying the money 11 years ago, uh, for the last 11 years I've been happy with it. So check it out, the Fletcher's Federal Pepper Mill. And that product I bought was made actually by a guy named Vic Firth, who makes drumsticks, a very famous drummer. And uh, it was absorbed by... Fletcher's, and the Vic Firth models are not around anymore. These are the same. I've verified that. Uh, I actually bought one of these to give to a friend as a Christmas gift uh, and compared every piece of it to my own, and they were interchangeable. It all worked. It's the same pepper mill. They just took the Vic Firth name off of it. I guess he made some money on it and decided I don't need to make pepper mills anymore. I'm going to go back to my drumsticks. Anyway, I, I really like this product. I think you will too. And uh, I have a link for the peppercorns I recommend. Uh, not that they go just with this pepper mill, but they're the best peppercorns I've found for the money. And the whole point of a pepper mill is if you're cooking with and using pre-ground pepper in your food, you're just not getting pepper. What makes pepper, black pepper especially, and, and the other colors of pepper shall come the same plant, so pungent and useful is the oils in it. And as soon as you grind them, those oils start going away. 
So please use ground pepper, not pre-ground pepper on your food and then you're cooking. You, you, you'll, you'll be happier that way. That's why when you make that, you take pepper out of thing, you shake it on, you don't really smell anything or whatever, but you take that pepper mill and you crack it and you smell that like, oh man, it smells good. That's the oils and they're volatile and they don't last long. And that's, that's why we want to use fresh cracked black, as they say, uh, in our cooking. And I'll tell you, like, thing I learned from macaroni grill that's amazingly good is just some olive oil. Crack some black pepper into it and dip bread in it. I don't eat a lot of bread, but if I'm going to eat bread, I'm probably going to eat it that way before I'm putting butter on it. And give that a shot if you're a bread eater. All right, that brings us to our song of the day. Song of the day today is by a group I never heard of called Blue Rodeo. I'm From looking at a little few things, I think they're Canadian. And I think they're really talking about Canadian government here and Canadian oligarchy and whatever, but we have plenty of that to go around here. And it's really kind of a protest song about oil pipelines and things like that. And I have, I have mixed emotions on that. I I personally think that until we're not using oil, we're going to use oil. And probably the safest way uh, to transport oil across long distances is through a pipe in the ground. But I, I think there's been enough spills and accidents and things like that that show a carelessness. Um, and if it, if it costs less to fix it and get away with it than it does to do it right. That's probably what they're going to do. So I'm not completely anti-oil because, well, I have a car and a truck, and they use oil to work. Um, and, and I know that for the time being at this, this point in humanity, what we have is an oil-based economy that provides all of the wonderful things in our lives. Um, and I also think we're moving slowly but surely past it. But it doesn't mean that just because that's what we're going to do and that's what we're going to use, we can't be more responsible about it for sure. And a lot of the other things in this song I completely and totally am on board with. Anyway, I hope you guys are enjoying your Thursday. hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, I do have a clean slate. Get your calls in for me. If you didn't like the subjects we talked about today, remember, Thursday is a show that you control what's on it. If you want to hear about other stuff, call and ask about that, and we'll probably talk about it. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Even if they don't. Still, it's disease. You shut down all the research libraries. And you muzzled all the white coats in your laboratories. Then you set your sights on the CBC.
a crime if I dissent. Supreme Court held in your contempt. Native women not a priority. Sometimes I You're stealing.